I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we're going to be looking at the remaining mysteries around Ghislaine Maxwell, the notorious associate of Jeffrey Epstein and the daughter of the enigmatic and controversial media mogul Robert Maxwell. Today, the 29th of December, the verdict came in on the Maxwell trial. She was found guilty on five of six counts and is facing a number of years in prison. The conversation you're going to hear in this episode was recorded a few weeks ago while the trial was still underway and features as our guest, Gabriella Lombardo, author of the article, Will Ghislaine Maxwell Trial? Reveal Jeffrey Epstein secrets at whowhatwhy.org. This conversation isn't so much about the trial itself as the remaining mysteries around Ghislaine Maxwell, many of which remain unanswered even now, as well as the cultural significance of the sordid sagas of Jeffrey Epstein and Elaine Maxwell. All that and more on this edition of the program. This conversation was recorded on December 6th, 2021. And with that in mind, let's get right to the conversation. But before we do, I want to tell you about one of my sponsors, Holistic Therapy with Alexander Yu. If you're a California resident dealing with trauma, grief, PTSD, LGBTIQ or gender issues, or are in need of marriage and relationship counseling, consider contacting Alexander Yu, who has a welcoming and all-embracing approach to meeting your therapeutic needs. You can reach Alexander at therapy at alexanderyoo.com or by calling or texting 323-834-9828. Alexander Yu, Marriage and Family Therapist, California License Number 102886. Holistic Therapy with Alexander Yu can help meet your therapeutic needs. And with that out of the way, let's get to the conversation with Gabriella Lombardo. Welcome to Parallax Views, Gabriella Lombardo, author of the piece at Who, What, Why, uh, a great website, and uh, I would consider Russ Baker 
and the work at Who, What, Why really great, but you have a piece up there called Will Ghislaine Maxwell Trial Reveal Jeffrey Epstein Secrets? Uh, and I always mispronounce her name, I think, but uh, what led you to write this article? Hi, JG. Thanks for having me. Um, I was just put on it, do some preliminary research on her, started with a timeline of her life and quickly found out that it is really just an insane web of coincidences and things crossing over. So you take a look at her life and everything you look at begets more questions, not answers. So I thought this was a good way to dive in because her background does matter. It is pertinent to the crimes she's accused of committing and her time with Epstein. So for people that have been living under a rock or people that just, I, I think a lot of people, they look at the Epstein case and if they know Maxwell's name, they just think, oh, that was like the, the procurer. Who is Ghislaine Maxwell? Right. Yeah, we've heard we've heard a lot that she's the mastermind. She's the puppeteer behind it all. So she was a longtime confidant of Epstein's. He had called her his best friend. They met in the early 1990s. The first known photo of them together is from 1991. Around this time, they dated. Even Ghislaine Maxwell herself is kind of murky on whether or not they were an actual couple, but um, they were lovers, we know that. And she was managing his households at one point. So she was his employee as well. She did things like hire gardeners and, and buy art. And to some extent, she maintained his schedules. And she's accused of basically procuring underage girls for Jeffrey Epstein. So what she brought to the formula, it said, is this posh British elegance. She would chat with these girls, get to know them, ask them about their lives. And she basically provided the cover for him. You know, in many of these instances, Epstein ingratiated himself with these underage girls' parents claiming that Ghislaine was his wife. They were just this philanthropic couple who wanted to help youth pursue their dreams, whether that be the arts or uh, you know, academic success, et cetera. So it's been said by victims that although Epstein, you know, he was sick, he was a sexual deviant, but Ghislaine was the mastermind behind it all. And, and we can see that you know, she's really being painted as a traitor to her sex. She is the one who served up these underage girls to Epstein. Thus, she is charged right now with federal sex trafficking crimes. There are six counts um, altogether. She could go to prison for 70 years maximum if she's convicted on all these counts. So her trial is ongoing in lower Manhattan. Um, and there are also an additional two counts of perjury against Ghislaine Maxwell for things she said in a long settled 2015 deposition in connection with a defamation suit against her. So with that could be up to 80 years. So you've seen bandied about 80 years, 70 years. This trial, it's up to 70 years. She could get an additional 10 at the other trial. Now, with regards to her background, 
essentially she's a, a British aristocrat. I mean, uh, she's even when you get beyond the Epstein stuff, her life is fascinating. Her father was um, Robert Maxwell, uh, the media mogul, uh, who you know a, a lot of people have speculated that he had ties with uh, the Mossad. And then there's also uh, I, I believe she was uh, courted by JFK Jr. at one point while he was still alive. So. Uh, she has rubbed shoulders with a lot of power players. Could you talk a little bit about her background uh, beyond just her relationship to Jeffrey Epstein? Yeah, yeah. And you're right in saying that it gets weirder the more you look at just her even. Um, so as you mentioned, she is the daughter of British media tycoon Robert Maxwell. If you're in the UK, you likely know the name. He's one of Britain's most famous white collar criminals. So Robert Maxwell himself is a fascinating figure. He was actually born a Czechoslovakian Jew. He changed his name. He fought in World War II briefly. He gained British citizenship. Um, he won a prestigious military cross in the war. Um, and, and then he became a publishing tycoon. It started with some scientific publishing outfits, and then he became the owner of you know, the Daily Mail and then later the New York Daily News. But he basically remade himself into a British aristocrat. And most would say he never fully reached that status. And he had a massive chip on his shoulder because of that. But he had nine children in all. Gillen was the youngest. Um, and it's said that she was his favorite. So he named her his luxury yacht after her, the yacht that in 1991 he fell off of and died. He was found uh, off the Canary Islands in the ocean. There was speculation at the time, and there still is today. Was he pushed? Did he jump? Did he have a heart attack and fall off? Because shortly after his death, uh, it was revealed that he had stolen somewhere around 500 million pounds from his Mirror Group newspaper's pension fund. So crooked, crooked, crooked. His media empire was revealed to be you know, in shambles. And uh, Gillen subsequently flew Concord to New York City and basically was able to reinvent herself here in the States in a way she wouldn't exactly have been able to in the UK, where more people know her name, where her father's disgraced name and, and finances would have followed her everywhere. Um, it's around this time that she met Jeffrey Epstein in 1991. In fact, the first known photo that we have of the two together is from 1991 at a memorial dinner for Gillen's father, Robert Maxwell. Um, so there's speculation. You know, some people say Epstein was a money manager in the 80s. People knew about him. So maybe Robert Maxwell had used Epstein to either do black magic accounting or move some of his money offshore, things like that. We, we don't know the origin story. It seems like it would matter greatly. But what we've gotten from Gillen's background is that she went from tragedy to tragedy, and it's fascinating to know that her life is basically framed on either side 
by two mysterious deaths of powerful, wealthy men. I mean, by many accounts, Robert Maxwell was a complete monster. And although Ghislaine was his supposed favorite child, he was hard on her. He was hard on his kids. She was a daddy's girl, though. I think it's been said he liked to kind of show up to parties with her on his arm. You know, she was beautiful. She had long legs. He was proud of her. She had all the social graces. Um, and then as soon as her father left the picture, she was really effectively all alone here in the U.S. So that's what we understand of her. And of course, you know, the truth is always stranger than fiction. And the narrative itself is powerful. Many have used the story of Robert Maxwell and that tragic history to say that, well, Ghislaine Maxwell is great at doing the bidding of powerful, monstrous men. She would, you know, go to business meetings for her father, things like that. Maybe that's what she did for Epstein. Maybe she liked the security that Epstein offered. You know, he was able to fund her lifestyle, essentially. And we don't know what the status of her financials were after her father's death and their family's ruin. Uh, it's been said that Robert Maxwell set up a trust for her uh, where she was getting, you know, something like $100,000 a year. Is that enough for Ghislaine Maxwell to live on when she had lived like a princess in, in the UK when her father was alive? So, I mean, there's just so much there. Is that in part why you write uh, that you, you write in the article, she is like Epstein, a person mysteriously made, um, which uh, that would tie into what you're saying about where is her money coming from and wealth after uh, the death of uh, her father, Robert Maxwell. And you also uh, write mysteriously protected. Could you talk about uh, why you include that line there, the uh, that line about she is like Epstein, a person mysteriously made and mysteriously protected? Yeah, yeah. Well, I was quoting a, um, there's a actually a great New York Times piece, which I think the mainstream media doesn't often pick up on this stuff, but I think this piece was great. It was about Epstein and when to take conspiracy theories seriously, when there's more to be explored there. So I didn't come up with that phrase, that author did, but I find it to be true of her. How does she have money? The prosecution claims that she has an estimated $20 million spread across something like 15 bank accounts, both here in the States and abroad. How did she get that money? She didn't work. Uh, I mean, maybe it was Epstein, but we don't exactly know where his money was coming from either. And then the protection, I mean, you can see, according to the theories, why Epstein had a band of people protecting him, a sort of insulative bubble around him and his crimes. Maybe they were either implicated or, you know, maybe to these powerful men, this was just the way it worked. You know, you don't, you don't tell on someone, you don't squeal, That's, it's not worth it. But her, you know, I mean, she didn't even come to light until I'd say Julie K. Brown's Miami Herald expose in 2018. And, and, and really, even not to interrupt you, but really, you know, it took Epstein's death for the brunt of the attention, the spotlight to go on her. Exactly. 
Exactly. And her defense is claiming that she's been made the scapegoat, that she's, you know, filling an empty chair since Epstein's death. But I mean, it's just, how was she able to hide from the world for close to a year? How? How did she do that? She disappeared from the face of the earth. How does anyone do that with modern technology? I mean, of course, we assume the FBI knew her whereabouts that entire time, right? But I mean, how, how do you do that? How does no one know anything about her whereabouts, say anything? I mean, even her society friends, many of them still back her, it's said. I was going to say, even, you know, I, I remember um, back in 2019, I think it was uh, right after Epstein died, I was just perusing uh, the news articles. And there was an article at the Business Insider uh, about, you know, uh, oh, it, it appears that there's this picture of Ghislaine Maxwell spotted reading uh, a book about the secret lives and deaths of CIA operatives. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think it was at an In-N-Out Burger. Uh, and even even the way Maxwell responds to certain questions and her own statements, even they have an air of being enigmatic. Like, as you uh, talk about in the article, she's asked if she was Epstein's girlfriend. And she says, that's a tricky question. There were times when I would have liked to think of myself as his girlfriend. That's just a very en enigmatic and in a way it's perplexing, you know. Oh, yeah. And, and you mentioned that famous in an out burger photo. So I think it was the New York Post who published that first. Well, it came out thereafter that the dog in the photo was not her dog, but the dog of one of her attorneys, I believe. And then someone else said that the movie poster in the background of that photo never existed in that area. They talked to the ad agency and everything. They were like, we have no record of this being advertised in this area. So it's even said that that is a doctored photo, or at least not from the time that it was published, that her team leaked that photo on purpose to throw people off her scent. Because remember, at around that time, it was leaked to the press that she was living at a mansion in Manchester by the sea, with her rumored boyfriend, Scott Borgerson, which was true. And she married him in secret in 2016. So, I mean, just the overlap, it's, it's wild, it's wild. And now a word from our sponsors. I wrote The Big Balloon, a love story, a memoir collage during quarantine. My legs swelled up at the computer. I took pictures of objects in my house. Each image inspired a wormhole of chain-linked recall. It's funny, disturbing, and scary honest. The chapters are just rooms in my house. Ryan Walsh, author of Astral Reeks, A Secret History of 1968, said this. Berlin populates his writing with memories that will break your heart and wisdom tossed off as one-liners. Walk through his house, flip on the lights room by room, see what he has left there for you and all of us. All of my bands, Orchestra Luna through the Nickel and Dime Band, find a place here. 
but there's a deeper cut into my non-musical queer life and those I've loved. Friends, family, portraits, and weird observations. Part Andy Rooney, part David Sedaris, part Proust. A stretch. You can read about it on my website, berlinrick.com. You can buy this beast of a book on Amazon, Bookshop, Barnes, and Noble. Thank you. Hey, Parallax News listeners. Before we continue the show, I've got a movie that I want to tell you about. Check out the film Tremel by Christopher Jason Bell, available on the Slam Dance YouTube channel. The film follows Dale as he lives a solitary life in a small town, his only outlet being conversations with the local pharmacist Muhammad. As time passes, Dale slowly begins to reveal more of his life and history to Muhammad. Lauded for its empathy, Tremel highlights the forgotten community member in a time when there is no community and examines what happens when someone's only human connection is a service worker. You can watch over at slamdance.com slash watch slash Tremel or at youtube.com slash slamdance. Check it out, folks. So what do you find most interesting about... Uh, you know, the parallels between, say, a Robert Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein. And may- maybe we could go into a little bit more about this idea of Maxwell being a spy, because people have uh, said that Epstein may have been involved with intelligence. And uh, also, I-, I guess, who would want to uh, off Robert Maxwell? Well, look, I'm, I'm certainly not an authority on this, but I can tell you what I've read so this is all it's still speculative but these speculations have been in the air for decades now about robert maxwell so you've heard of like the mordecai vanunu case uh i don't exactly know the details but it was rumored back he was an israeli nuclear whistleblower yeah yes and and he died right under mysterious circumstances or was put in jail he was, yeah, he was put in jail. He, he's not dead, but yeah, he, he was put in jail. I think he was picked up by the Mossad and just, just sort of taken up way back to Israel. Yeah. Oh, right, right. And how, how was his location given up? So Robert Maxwell is rumored to have been involved with that. Of course, Bob Maxwell, as he was called, Captain Bob, um, was, you know, a bigwig in British tabloid media, the height of tabloids power in the 80s. So, I mean, you can imagine back then, you do have power to change conversations on things. So it's been rumored that he had ties with, you know, Gorbachev, as well as folks at uh, the uh, British intelligence services, that maybe that stems from his time in the war, that British intelligence has had used him during World War II, as a sort of intelligence asset because he had this fabulous ability to speak and adopt as his almost native tongue, multiple languages, right? I mean, he completely remade himself into a British, you know, landed gentleman when he, you know, was from Czechoslovakia. And he's got this fabulous posh British accent. I mean, it's almost impossible. So there are rumors that the espionage he was involved with started back then in essentially 
the 40s and 50s when he started his scientific publishing outfit um, and that British forces helped him do that. And then you fast forward and there's the Mordecai Venunu case. And then there's the fact that, you know, he would make these grand statements about which foreign leaders he would speak with regularly. He said something like, Gorbachev would never do this without speaking to me first. He would make crazy statements like that. And a lot of people just brush them off. And then some people think that he may have been telling the truth. Maybe he wasn't lying. Maybe he wasn't exaggerating. Um, and then, you know, you go even more forward to his death. He was buried on the Mount of Olives in Israel. He was given an Israel state funeral. There were reportedly six current and former heads of Israeli intelligence in attendance at that funeral. Uh, one person, I, I forget if he was an Israeli prime minister or president or head of intelligence in Israel, said at his funeral, Robert Maxwell has done more for Israel than can be said now. So a lot of people took that and ran with it as evidence that he was working with Mossad, et cetera, et cetera. And then you go to Epstein. And Epstein had a lot of the same connections that Robert Maxwell had. And then you have Alex Acosta allegedly claiming that he was told by intelligence that Epstein was quote unquote, you know, an asset of intelligence. Acosta claims he was told Epstein's above your pay grade. Now that's a statement Acosta allegedly made. We don't know who he said it to. So, I mean, it's puzzle pieces and we don't know how to connect them, but it's definitely there. There is something under the water there to be explored further. So then where do you go from there? I mean, it seems like there's so many unanswered questions. What do you think could come out of this trial? Look, I mean, this trial I think is very narrow in scope. So remember that each side is trying to tell a story and sell a narrative. You know, it's not that the defense is the enemy of truth. The prosecution can also be an enemy of truth. Their goal here is to prosecute her on these charges, which are limited, right, for victims. This isn't the story of Jeffrey Epstein. This isn't even the story of Ghislaine Maxwell. But you can use what we find in this trial as sort of a blueprint for exploring the Epstein saga. That's exactly what it is, right? I mean, this is the ring cycle of court cases further. So for instance, look for what is not said, right? Look for people that witnesses mention who are not currently charged, right? Other potential co-conspirators. And remember that this case is being tried through the public corruption unit of the Southern District of New York, as Epstein's case was tried through the PCU. Now the public corruption unit, this usually involves or at least mentions a public official either currently serving 
or former. So what does that really tell us? Not exactly a lot. It doesn't guarantee that a public official is implicated in this case, but it could say potentially a public official could be mentioned in this case, in the documents or in witness testimony. So recall that each side is telling a story. They're going to try to misdirect us Right, They want us to believe what they lay out for us. So be careful not to go down rabbit holes and just remember that this isn't the whole story. The web is much bigger than this. I also wanted to get into, if we could, so, you know, there's two cases with Epstein himself. You know, there's the one in Florida and then the one in New York. And of course, the New York thing ended with uh, his death. Where does Maxwell end up, though, after the Florida case and after, you know, all of that comes to light with Epstein? She has a pretty interesting um, life. I mean, speaking, I think, at the United Nations and all kinds of things. Could you talk about that? Oh, yeah. So Epstein is let off in the sweetheart deal of the century, right? In 2009, he's free. And at this point, Gillen is no longer working for him. And uh, she is known to have been an associate of his, but it certainly does not cramp her style. She founds a nonprofit called Terra Mar, incorporated in both the UK and the US. It's a weird, shadowy ocean nonprofit. You pledge your allegiance to help save the oceans and you get kind of an ocean passport saying that you own this part of the ocean, you are steward of this part of the ocean. It's really probably, I think, reputation laundering on her part that she did this nonprofit. But nevertheless, you know, she gave a TED talk on Terramar. She attended the United Nations multiple times at multiple different meetings. She was honored at the UN. Um, her foundation had a YouTube channel where she appeared and interviewed people, scientists, journalists on saving the oceans and ocean conservation, etc. All the while, you know, in 2011, Virginia Jeffrey first tells the Daily Mail about the Prince Andrew assaults. And, you know, lawyers are chasing Jalen to try and serve her court documents. Meanwhile, she's, you know, high flying at the UN. She attended Chelsea Clinton's wedding in 2010. She went to the Clinton Global Initiative. They had, you know, galas, etc. Remember, she was photographed with Elon Musk at, I think it was the 2014 or 2015 Vanity Fair Oscar party. I mean, she's everywhere. She's living it up without Epstein, but people know she was involved with him, right? And, and, and also, I, I was going to say with the Terramar thing, I, I mean, it's a grant-making foundation, but apparently they never gave out more than a few hundred dollars. Yeah, never more than a thousand dollars. That charity still owes Gillen, I think, around five hundred thousand dollars. So she pumped that cash in. Of course, they never made any grants, never made any headway, um, and that's even an interesting problem. There, the New York Post 
reported that Terramar was under investigation for ties to Epstein because there was a girl, I, I believe she was underage at the time, who was in Epstein's flight logs, who ended up being named on the board of directors at Terramar. So is she using Terramar as a slush fund to pay off her and Epstein's alleged victims, right? So, I mean, this is all just, it's stranger than fiction. You really can't make it up. But, you know, she kept making the rounds. Even then, up to, what, 2015, she was still hanging out with Prince Andrew. Now, of course, unlike Prince Andrew, Ghislaine Maxwell was not photographed taking walks in the park with Epstein after his 2008 conviction, right? So she's careful in that sense. But, I mean, she's a policy event guru after 2009, up until, you know, when she goes into hiding in 2015. Right. So there's the whole, I mean, basically everything uh, comes crashing down for her uh, in a way um, when Virginia Jeffrey uh, accused her of grooming and sexually assaulting her. And uh, Jeffrey, of course, was, uh, I believe, 15 or 16 years old at the time. Maxwell is like, no, this is all lies. Uh, but that led to a, a defamation suit. Um, do you have any information on that? Yeah, so this was a 2015 defamation suit against Maxwell that Jeffrey filed. Um, crucially, Maxwell sat for sworn testimony, depositions in this suit. And uh, that's where the charges of perjury today stem from. So in this suit, Yelen not only sat for depositions, but you have thousands of pieces of evidence. You have, you know, police reports. You've got stuff from Epstein's mansion. There are, there are call sheets. One notable piece of evidence is a message written down for Epstein from Jean-Luc Brunel, the French modeling agent who's now in prison in Paris for this stuff. He left Epstein a message, something or other, have a Russian 14-year-old girl to give you lessons, not blonde, but she would be able to start today. Call me back. Of course, what does that mean, not blonde? Is she really going to be giving him language lessons? Um, so just thousands of pieces of evidence spanning time, really. Now, this... These records were ordered unsealed and done so right around the time that Epstein uh, killed himself. In fact, it was the day before Epstein was found dead in his cell that those famous 2000 pages were unsealed from Jeffrey's defamation suit against Maxwell. And in this suit, it names names, there's tons of evidence it widens this swath of what we know. And it, it just, it was not, it was not good for Epstein's case for these pages to be unsealed when they were. And it's not good for Maxwell's case. Ma Maxwell's yeah. been fighting to keep a lot of documents from that defamation suit under seal, right? Oh yeah, she still is fighting. And they're still being ordered unsealed partially unredacted. Of course, some things will be kept private. But I mean, look, this is just the tip of the iceberg. We're going to know more. As more of these 
documents from civil suits are unsealed and ruled to be part of the public interest, we will learn more. And much of what we know comes from these very documents from Jeffrey's defamation suit. Yeah, it just gets weirder and weirder. That, that's what I love about this uh, Who, What, Why article you wrote, because, I mean, even after all this stuff happens in, in 2019 with Epstein's arrest and death, it, it just gets so bizarre how she's, you know, she shutters the nonprofit, uh, she purchases a new home, uh, registers a new phone number, all of this other stuff. I think you even write that she had a security detail of a British ex-military guarding her home, it just keeps getting more and more bizarre. Oh yeah, I mean, when the FBI raided her mansion that summer morning in 2020, it uh, wasn't that early, in fact. It was actually 8.30 a.m. Usually they, they wake people earlier than that even. But they encountered this company of uh, ex-British military and actually chatted with them. These military guys said that they were hired by Gillen's brother, who, uh, of course, maintains her innocence and really has gone to bat for her in the press, in documentaries. Um, and, you know, they went to the door. And when they ordered her to open the door, so they claim they saw her through a window, flee to another room, go through a different door and shut that door behind her. Then they breached the door and they claim to have found a cell phone wrapped in tinfoil on a desk. So, I mean, she must have been expecting this and her lawyers have claimed that she was in communication with federal authorities since Epstein's arrest, but what can you really trust? I mean, what do we really know? They did indeed ferret her out. Was that a staged media circus? Maybe, you know, <laughs> maybe if she had known these charges were going to be levied against her, she would have surrendered or something. But then again, the government would not have been able to take that chance with her. She's a French citizen, they don't extradite. She's got millions, she could have easily fled. And instead, you know, they grab her from this New Hampshire mansion. Remember the whole world was looking for her, like, oh, is she in Paris? Is she here, is she there? She's in the forests of New Hampshire, just living a quiet life. She, she did take a lot of measures, though, to protect herself, she claims, from press intrusion, things like having packages delivered to her home under different names that aren't hers, of course. But the prosecution has called this attempts at evading detection. So, so wrapping up here, what do we know about the legal team? I know uh, they're probably going to try to use uh, this whole thing about false memory syndrome to bolster defense, right? Yeah, they're going to use false memory and, you know, a few other tactics, call the victims gold digging, et cetera, et cetera, uh, to their advantage. So they've called as a witness for the defense, a renowned and pretty much roundly controversial clinical psychologist. Her name is Elizabeth Loftus. She is the quote unquote false memory expert She's testified in tons of cases of child molestation and sexual assault. She testified in the cases of Harvey Weinstein, uh, Jerry Sandusky way back when, OJ Simpson before that, 
Ted Bundy. I mean, this woman's been around a while. So we think she will most likely challenge the memories of Epstein's victims. And of course, these crimes occurred from 1994 to 2004, allegedly. So this is a while back. Some of this happened close to 30 years ago. So they, they may have a strong tactic there. Real quick, I just wanted to add to that. Another thing I think about, and I don't know if you've thought about this, but uh, you know, when you hear about these connections supposedly to the intelligence world, right? You know, uh, you know, it's been said that uh, Epstein would tell people that he was involved with intelligence and and all of these other things. I kind of wonder if Epstein and Maxwell maybe they they were gaslighting everyone, including people like Virginia Giffray, uh, like just making up lies and then mixing them with uh, truths and all kinds of things. Like it, it seems like a picture that's always going to be somewhat blurry because of that. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't know if we'll ever know the truth there because, yeah, you know, Epstein had a hold over grown men. Les Wexner, right? How old was he when Epstein bamboozled him? And then, of course, there's, you know, Epstein allegedly threatened, you know, Vicki Ward, who was reporting on him for the Vanity Fair article from 2003, I believe. Uh, it's been reported that Graydon Carter, when he was editor of Vanity Fair, found a dead cat's head on his lawn. I mean, who was doing that? And then Ghislaine supposedly was threatening Epstein's victims herself calling them up, allegedly saying threatening things to them. You know, watch your back. I know where you live. Allegedly, things like that. So I, I was going to say with the Wexner thing, it's always amazed me that Wexner just handed him sweeping powers over his finances um, and, it, and philanthropy and private life. It's just, uh. Yeah, I mean, Epstein, he, he was a money manager for the ultra wealthy. If you came to him with $500 million dollars, He'd say, no, I can't help you. You have to have a billion and I'm going to manage all of it. But it's so weird because like, you think to yourself, how does he get there? He's like a college dropout. It's wild. I mean, we still don't know. And there's been how, how much ink has been spilled on this. And we still just do not know. I hope that we find out more, but I mean, also, you know, I don't know if you get this, but there's also a sense that maybe we use these claims of intelligence, espionage, to make ourselves feel better that something like this exists in the world. It happened, and it happened, some think, up until Epstein's arrest. You know, maybe to these powerful men, a girl who looks 17, eh, she's on the cusp. Doesn't matter. Eh, she's enjoying herself. Eh, she's getting something out of it. I mean, it's insane for us to even reckon with that possible reality. Maybe these men thought nothing of it. Well, so, I, I just wanted to add to that, too. I think in talking about all the intelligence stuff, I think sometimes people overlook the, the aspect of, of modeling agencies. I mean, Jean-Luc Brunel was part of the modeling agency world. And, you know, I, I feel like the focus on that is almost ignored at times. And it, there may be even cultural reasons for that. Maybe people are just uh, too, 
I don't know, too uncritical of that industry. Oh, right. Yeah. That as if that behavior is part and parcel of the entertainment industry. Jean-Luc Brunel had founded MC Squared Modeling and Epstein was pretty much like a ghost founder. The joke there being what's missing from MC Squared. Well, E, E equals MC Squared, Epstein equals MC Squared. And, you know, they used the modeling agency to lure underage girls. Some of the victims who saw quote unquote models walk into Epstein's New York mansion, they said these models had braces on. You know, Ghislaine would allegedly say things like, oh, I've got I've to go scout some, some teenage girls for Jeffrey needs some models. I mean, it was a cover too. They used everything as covers from what we understand. So then for you, what do you think the Epstein case sort of says about ourselves? Because in, in a way, I almost feel like uh, we're talking about a very dark subject, but we're also uh, talking about something that I think a lot of people just find morbidly fascinating. Uh, it, it's it's kind of tricky because, I mean, it is fascinating, but then you 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 know, hear from someone like Virginia Jeffrey or, or read some of her interviews and you're, you're horrified, but you're also, there's this weird morbid fascination that goes with it. Oh yeah. I mean, if you take, if you take the cultural long view, this is just, it can be read. You can do a close reading of this case. Gillian Maxwell is like Madame Mertuis in Dangerous Liaisons. She's like an aging corrupt European aristocrat preying on hopeful American naivete. And in a way, I think the Epstein case disgusts us, but also fascinates us because it points to the deficiencies in American exceptionalism. It shows us that we're not different. We too effectively have an aristocracy. If you have money, you can get out of it. If you have power, you can buy your way out of it. It's not, you know, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness for all. It's, hey, if you're a poor teenage girl living in the trailer park, your family's got problems, single parent household, maybe some drugs, here be dragons, you're not even safe at your summer job. The woman who comes up to you with an opportunity, you cannot trust her. Even there, you are not safe. So, I mean, it seems almost crude to say it in this way, but yes, culturally, this is fascinating. And I think it comes at a real tipping point as far as Me Too, modern feminism. What do we do with Ghislaine Maxwell? Is there any room for pity? Is there any room to recognize that she was operating in a space powered by men? We don't want to say that, right? She's, we, we villainize her, um, understandably so, given the charges against her, but it's still fascinating and, and we're not going to know. I think, I think we're going to be grappling with this, talking about it for decades. Yeah, and I was going to say, I mean, it, it, culturally it, it coincides in a lot of ways with me too, but also even something like Occupy Wall Street, I think it resonates with that because it's like the the... Uh, the the super wealthy getting away with uh, the worst things possible and imaginable. Um, for me, 
you know, what worries me is I think that people just look at the Epstein case as almost, they sort of put a magnifying glass on it to the point where they don't think that maybe this is happening all around us in different ways. Uh, I, what I, I guess what I'm saying is I'm not sure that this is a new story. In, in some ways, I think uh, cases of abuse by you know very powerful people uh, is a story as old as time. And I think it keeps reproducing itself. Um, how it reproduces itself is, I think, the only way you can really stop it. Even with the death of uh, Jeffrey Epstein, uh, even with the arrest of Ghislaine Maxwell, even if she gets convicted, uh, you know, the question remains of, you know, how do we keep Jeffrey Epstein's from reproducing in the future? Uh, I don't mean like physically reproducing. I mean, like uh, people like that keep popping up within our societies. Uh, and maybe you can't stop that from happening, but how do you, is, is there a way to limit that? Is there a reason that it pops up in our society, in our culture? And I think that's a question that isn't raised enough in the Epstein and Maxwell cases. Oh yeah, oh yeah, I mean, zooming out like that, it's, yeah, I mean, come on, this isn't just one guy, this isn't just one industry. This involves the federal government. It goes to the highest levels of federal government, right? This is the Bureau of Prisons, the Justice Department, the FBI, the CIA, state attorney's offices. This is just massive in scope. And I don't know if it requires reforms. I don't know if this is something you start at the economic root of. I mean, Epstein was very much a, uh, a product of the booming 1980s what's well, it's, it's I, I was just going to say real quick it's so part of me wonders at times if i mean if you're an aristocrat i mean that that's a level of wealth that most people will never know i don't think you and i will ever know it uh, the, the levels of wealth uh these people had or at least you know in, in you know arguably epstein may have um pretended to have more wealth than he had at times but the, the circles that these people run in, they operate on a completely different level than we do. And I'm not trying to push like, like, uh, you know, like weird uh, conspiracy theories or, or David Icke things, but it, it's, it's always interested me that, uh, you know, there's always these, these conspiracy theories about uh, elites. Uh, are, are they shapeshifters? Are they reptilians? And I think all that's, you know, crazy, but as a metaphor, I sort of get it because, I mean, if you're that wealthy, if you're in that upper echelon of society, you're probably so disconnected from the rest of the world that you have a completely different view of how the world operates, what your morality is, how you operate within the world, because you're not really a part of the society. You're almost like above it. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're right to call out the wealth. This isn't wealth. This is like bond villain level wealth. This is a private island, a fleet of private planes, absolute control over your destiny. Your but, but not just that wealth, but like how that wealth must uh, affect one's like psychology and, and, and how they relate to the world socially. I mean, it, it's mind boggling. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, one thing you have to wonder about 
Most of these men are doing black magic accounting, right? They probably have banks offshore. Once you have wealth, you want to keep it. You do things like that. Um, some of them were in politics, so they know some state secrets, right? Some of his associates, at least friends, people who traveled with him. We don't know if they were involved in the abuse. But when you're dealing with all that, when you have that much power and you've seen how that power operates in the world, seeing a girl who looks underage, does that hit you as it would hit you and me? Like, does it even register? that there's something wrong with this picture? Maybe not. Well, that, that's a dark note to end on, but if there's anything else you want to add, I, I wanted to give you a chance to maybe uh, explain what you think, or maybe what you want listeners to get out of this conversation, I should say, because I think this is a very free-flowing conversation that provided more, it actually raises more questions than it answers the conversation we had. So, what do you hope listeners get out of this? Well, listen, the court case is peddling truth, justice, accountability. Um, who knows if that's what we'll get? Just recall that both sides, the prosecution and the defense, want to direct the jury in certain ways. I guess what I'd say zooming out on Gillian Maxwell. Do you, I'm, I'm just, do you think, I, I'll just put you on the spot here. Do you think it's potentially true or maybe do you feel that it's possible that Ghislaine Maxwell herself was a victim? Because I almost feel like you may be getting at that. Um, is, is that sort of uh, an angle that you're interested in? Well, Look, she was an adult when she made her choices, mm -hmm. but a lot of people have spoken about, well, you know, maybe she was victimized. Maybe she was brainwashed. Maybe she was perfectly primed for doing this kind of work. Mm -hmm. She did something like it for her dad, as far as we understand. Well, also just to note, I mean, to say someone is a victim also doesn't preclude that they, it doesn't preclude the possibility that they can also be an abuser. No, of course, of course. And I think as we, as we understand more how sexism works in our society, I think we'll see more talk in future about how, yeah, Ghislaine Maxwell, you, you have to be a little bit more subtle about her involvement. What was she after and why was she after that? Yes, she, if, if she is convicted of this, these are heinous crimes, right? But I would caution to stay away from the whole traitor to her sex narrative. You know, it has been said that Epstein was sick, but she was evil. I, I would stay away from that. So as far as I can say that I think she was a victim, I mean, I don't, but I do think there are a lot of subtleties here to be paid attention to even further down the line. I think we'll be talking more about this. As we've talked about, you know, the other enablers, Sarah Kellen, Nadia Marcinkova, what were their home lives like? Why were they doing what they did? What did they think they were doing? Because in the end, this was a boys club. Yelen may have been central to it, but it was for the boys. Yeah, and I, I think 
I think that's true. There, there are people that are just like, well, Epstein was an abuser, but Maxwell was evil. I, I think the flip side of that is that I've also met people that almost just can't believe that a woman would have been involved with someone like Epstein in this way. So it gets strange because I feel like the whole case itself actually gets us to, you know, question all our uh, long held assumptions about everything, you know. Oh, yeah. And, you know, an interesting thing is the defense in their opening opening statement, they said something like, ever since Eve, women have been blamed for the misdeeds of men. Now that echoes something they said in pre-trial court documents in response to something the prosecution said in her indictment press conference. Back then, after she was arrested, they said she had, quote, slithered to her gorgeous New Hampshire property. And then her defense team said in court records, well, that reeks of a biblical sort of sexism that is unacceptable, unfairly villainizes uh, uh, our client in the press. And, you know, th- you think about those things, right? How, how are our opinions on her informed by our culture? You know, look at, look at the culture and look at it. At the, at the facts of the case. So it's, it's fascinating. And, you know, who, who knows where we'll end up with this, but it is an interesting view to look at her gender being part of her alleged deeds. And then also take away her gender and see what you think then. Because I, I bet it's different, right? Well, I want to thank you uh, Gabriella Lombardo for coming on Parallax Views. Is there any way that my listeners can keep up with your work? Yeah, you can uh, read my work at whowhatwhy.org. You can also follow me on Twitter at Gabriella Lombo. That's Gabriella with two L's and then L-O-M-B-O. Thank you, JG. I appreciate it. This has been fun. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Gabriella Lombardo of whowhatwhy.org. I'd like to wish you, the listener, a happy new year in case this ends up being the final episode of Parallax Views for 2021. And of course, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. There's everything from a $1 tier to a $100 tier with a $5, $10, and $15 tier in between. And at the $10 tier and above, you get a producer's credit shoutout. So, producer's credit shoutouts to... Mark Arlen Spartacus Gunner, Ed Gratz, James Mickey, Brian The Warnerd, The 42 Group, Nick Emilia, Chase Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nathan David Holland, Martin Stu Jeffrey Thomas, Fabian, and Elliot. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, consider joining those listeners in supporting me at the $10 tier or above on my Patreon page 
at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing this like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.